Welcome to another edition of the Portland, Oregon OWASP podcast. Today we'll be talking with Ian Melvin. Ian currently leads security at a Los Angeles-based startup. Previously, he built and led the product security team at New Relic. Ian has worked in security-related roles for over 15 years, including at Mozilla, Adobe, McAfee, and At Stake. Ian has been involved in the Portland chapter of OWASP since moving to the area in 2013 and was chapter chair for 2019. He supports West Ham United. Ian Melvin, thank you so much for taking the time to do the podcast. Uh, You're very welcome, John. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. First of all, before we start, I don't know if you remember, but about three years ago, uh, I was working at my previous employer and we reached out to you and a few other folks. We were just starting a brand new web application security program there, but we didn't have much experience. But I just remember you spending some time with us. I think we had lunch. I think we went down to the Big Pink, but I just want to thank you for doing that. And also just thank you for doing that in the spirit of OWASP course you know at this point in my career i feel like one of the best things i can do is try to give back to the information security industry and community and help other people find their way into the field that has done very well by me so tell us about your background how did you get into security in the first place uh, I have a background where I spent a lot of my teenage years running bulletin board systems and calling up bulletin board systems on my Apple IIe computer and 2400 baud modem. You know, I'd always had an interest in computers and just kind of interest in computer security in general. From there, I went on to university where I got a degree in computer science, but I also spent most of my time focusing on DJing and music. And then after that, a couple jobs later, I was working as a Windows developer, just a straight up Windows engineer at the time. And it was in the, I guess, mid to late 90s. And it was the era of the Microsoft worms, of the Windows worms, of the Code Reds and the Nimdas and the SQL Slammers. And there was just all this attention about, you know, Windows security and Windows remote exploits and worms. And I remember, you know, we were Windows, we were Windows shop at the time. Like I said, I was a Windows developer. And I remember looking at the Microsoft security bulletin, which had some of their kind of boilerplate language by sending specially crafted malformed input to IIS, which was the Microsoft web server in Windows at that time, or still is, I guess. You can cause IIS to execute arbitrary instruction. And at this point, I was really confused. I didn't understand how you could make a program do something that the programmer had not written code to make it do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because like I said, I was not spending a lot of time paying attention to my computer science classes when I would have learned important things like code and data (laughs) being the same thing. You know, I started to dig into that and I started to read the advisories of the time, which gave a lot of technical detail on how things how things worked and, and what the issues were. And I started to read kind of seminal publications of the era, like Aleph One's Smashing the Stack for Fun and Profit in Frack. Mm-hmm. And indeed, I started reading all of the issues of Frack to try to just really understand computer security and really go into it as a field as I understood that it could be a career and, you know, something I could basically dig into and, and make a living from. Your, your story is not uncommon, especially people probably around our age. It's the same thing where we're working, we're working in some domain or in your case for Windows development. And then something security related comes up, something mm. that nobody around in the on the team really knows anything about. But you caught the bug and you you, you stepped up and, and it seems like you still have it, right? You still love security. Absolutely. Yeah, there are parts of security that I still love. Absolutely. I think one of the main things is it's, it's constantly changing. It's constantly shifting. It's never boring. There's there's just a constant flow to it that you have to keep up with. 
Today, there's, there's cybersecurity programs in college, but I'm sure you get asked a lot, what advice would you give someone interested in getting into information security today? Oh, that's a great question. That's a question I'm asked pretty frequently. I think there's a couple of different ways to approach it. I always recommend bug bounty programs to people, not necessarily joining a bug bounty program or trying to find bugs in a bug bounty program, but just by going on one of the platforms, one of the bug bounty platforms, and looking at some of the reports from the, the companies that open up and disclose the vulnerabilities, you can learn a lot about you know what kind of vulnerabilities exist in modern software and also what, what kind of vulnerabilities are interesting to companies. And if you do choose to sign up for the platforms and hunt bounties on the platform, you can also learn about the kinds of vulnerabilities that companies find valuable. Mm -hmm. uh, the other piece of advice I give people is to maybe pick a particular facet of information security and, and focus on that. You know, uh, I think information security is such a broad field that Studying information security in general is very difficult. I think it's helpful to pick a particular aspect that you find interesting, whether it's application security or reverse engineering or red teaming or exploit development or detection response. Whatever aspect of information security appeals to you or draws you to it, start with that and start digging into that and then branch out from there. Rather than trying to study this kind of broad nebulous field, I, I feel that in 2020, information security is too broad for people to really be generalists in it. Yeah, there's always the talk about these millions of jobs out there. But then again, what exactly are they talking about? There definitely is a lot of demand for cybersecurity talent, but... There's a lot of people looking for, I think, a small pool of individuals at this point. It's it's still a relatively new discipline. You know, one of the problems that people have with hiring in information security is how do you know that somebody knows what they're talking about? You know, how do you know that somebody really knows what they're doing security-wise? And the closest thing we have to that is certifications, which have their pros and cons. But yeah, it's it's a difficult thing. And a lot of people don't understand how to interview security engineers. Or when I was recently considering new opportunities for work, I found that many companies just did not really understand what a security engineer could offer them. Or, you know, we're looking for somebody to tell them what the right things to focus on were. I was also talking to startups that were pretty small and looking for their first security hire, mostly. So you once said, just, just going on top of that, you once said that hiring the best people doesn't mean the most skilled. So let's say somebody comes to your place, they got all the skill set, maybe they're good offensive or pen testers or even defensive side. You said there's so much more to hiring than that. What do you mean by that? I think really what I meant was that a team is composed of a blend of individuals and a blend of their strengths, ideally. And technical skill is just one of the things that are important to a high-functioning, high-performing security team. You know, leadership comes in lots of varieties. It can be team leadership and kind of somebody who's in charge of setting direction and keeping people motivated and thinking about morale. It can be project leadership, like project management, making sure that people are hitting deadlines Things are shipping and people are meeting their commitments to other part of the organization. Different candidates have those aspects in different amounts. And it's important to look at the makeup of your team currently and think about what you need and choose the person that really brings what you need at the moment to your team rather than just hiring the most technically skilled person. Now, there's another camp out there who says, well, you know what? If there's not enough skilled people out there, we're, gonna, we're just going to put it all into our tools in our security mm. tools. Are we putting too much trust in our security tools these days? Absolutely. 
Well, I shouldn't say that because uh, really the answer, like the answer to many security questions is that it depends. One of the things I used to talk about a lot on my previous team and I still believe very strongly in is the difference between deploying a tool and operationalizing a tool. You know, deploying a tool, getting it set up, having it do the thing, that's one thing, that's that's just work. But really operationalizing it and tuning it and making it useful and making the information that it gives you or the alerts that it delivers valuable and actionable, that takes an immense amount of work for most security tools. I don't feel like most security tools deliver that much value out of the box. And, you know, I feel like, sure, you can buy the tool, you can throw money at the problem, but you're going to need people to really operationalize it and make it valuable and deliver value from it. But then it depends what your goal for the tool is as well. So, okay, let's say you have a, a good group of people and you have the right tools in place. You also mentioned that there's a big difference between respecting risk and fearing risk, because that's obviously what's taking place here. As all this information's getting in, you're trying to protect your assets. Doesn't fear get respect or vice versa? It does maybe in the short term, but I, I have always advocated playing the long game in security. Yeah, I think I think that fear... You know, scaring people, making them afraid of things and using fear to motivate them to do things, that does work in the short term, but it also has limited utility and it's like crying wolf. You can only do it so many times before people stop listening. So one of the things that I feel that the product security team did really well at my previous employer that I was leading was only cry wolf when there was something really bad. And because we only sort of pulled the alarm when something was really serious and actually had a significant amount of risk, we were listened to and people took us seriously. Yeah, I, I, I think fear can be a motivator in the short term, but I would rather spend my time playing the long game, educating people or making people aware of why security is important rather than trying to scare them by talking about scary hackers. We both like the Talking Heads. Uh, One of my tw- favorite bands. <laughs> yeah, mine too. Uh, Life During Wartime. And you tweeted a quote, which I didn't know. And this is an amazing quote because this goes back to 1979 from David Byrne regarding how there's a dilemma between storing lots of information for convenience sake versus the potential misuse of it. Well, these days, as you know, we're seeing a lot of breaches and behind the scenes sharing of personal information without recourse. There are some laws that are coming into place, especially in California recently and GDPR a few years ago. But your thoughts about fixing it, because I know you've worked at places where data, of course, is the asset. Is, is this something that's fixable at all? Is this just a technical problem, a legal problem, or is it even a problem at all? Oh, it's definitely a problem. I would say it's an intersectional problem. One of the things that has happened in recent history is the attitude around data is starting to shift from kind of what you mentioned, where it's let's collect everything we can and maybe we'll find something to do with it later. Or maybe we'll have some future product that leverages this data that we're collecting that we're not using right now. The attitude has shifted from that to data being a toxic asset, I think. Data can't be breached or leaked if you don't have it or if you don't collect it from the user. So I think there's starting to be this awareness of, you know, of course there is monetary value in the data that you collect from users, depending on how you analyze it and depending on who you sell those insights to, but I think there's a growing awareness that it's a trade-off, you know? It's a trade-off. If you have the data, then it can get breached. You know, we see this in the government where the agency that's responsible for security clearances had everyone's security clearance interview information, and then they were breached. The data can't get breached if you don't have it. You can't be in violation of GDPR or CCPA or whatever regulation 
if you don't collect the data, if it's not strictly necessary for your primary business case, as I understand it, yeah, I think there's a growing awareness. There's a trade-off there. As our previous chapter president, you've seen a huge growth in our membership, along with participation, especially in our annual training day in October. What do you attribute this to? I attribute it to a couple of things. I believe that we have better channels to communicate with our membership now via the main OWASP organization. We not only have a a mailing list powered by Google Groups, we also have a Twitter, which we had before, but we also have a meetup and a LinkedIn group as well. So I think part of it is we're just really using the social media channels that we have available to us to their fullest. I think part of it is... It's been, you know, again, this is a good example of of playing the long game. It's been several years that I've been involved in OWASP in Portland, and there's been several transitions of leadership and several infusions of new people, which is really important to a healthy community. And I think one of the main things that's made a big difference is the consistency of really committing to doing a meeting every month. That's been a relatively new change that's come in over the last three or four years or so, I'd say. And I think that makes it more predictable for people. They know that we're going to have a meeting every month. We're able to build an audience. We're able to build a a real community around the chapter meetings. And also, I think Training Day has been kind of a huge flagship project, an event for us to get engagement for the chapter and build awareness of what we're doing and what we're trying to do. And show people what we're about, which is really giving back to the local community and helping people, as I said earlier, helping people explore the industry and maybe enter it if that's what they feel like they want to do. Do you have any upcoming events or things that you want to plug or promote? Only my drum and bass mixes, which are on Mixcloud. Give us a link. HTTPS colon slash slash Mixcloud.com slash time stretch. I'm so glad you put the S in there. That's very important. Yeah. This is 2020. There's no excuse for no S. Ian Melvin, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, John. This podcast is brought to you by the Portland, Oregon chapter of the Open Web Application Security Project, OWASP. Check us out online and see how we're making the web a more secure place. Music is by Tomo and Animoy, and my name is John Whiteman. Thanks for listening.